Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. And I'm going to try to jump right into this pretty quick. I realize that my preambles can get long and tedious for you as the viewer slash listener. Um, so somebody recommended that I check out this Paul Logia, and I try to take those recommendations when it looks like the uh, atheist YouTuber has something interesting to say. By the way, uh, you may notice that this video has something to do with the Kalam cosmological argument, uh, but I realize I've done several videos related to that, and um, partly that's because what's one of the two arguments that I typically uh, use whenever I do debates on this issue that involved the existence of God. And so uh, it makes sense for me to do that, but also because um, I had someone ask uh, just one just one commenter out of all the discussions of cosmological arguments that we've had, just one commenter who actually asked, uh, what about the B theory of time? Doesn't the B theory of time cause a problem for the Kalam cosmological argument? And uh, you may not even know what I mean when I say A versus B theory of time and talk about those things. So in this uh, episode, even though he doesn't bring it up, I'm going to help him out. I'm going to try to make his case stronger by giving him an argument that he could have used uh, to try to shoot down Craig's cosmological argument, and then we're going to deal with that. So, uh, so we'll get to cover that, and that means we're going to talk a lot about time. And man, I really love talking about time. Time is fascinating to me, and uh, I'm taking up too much of it now. So I don't know too much about this YouTuber. Uh, I think he's got an interesting name, pretty clever. Uh, I like his setup. I like the animation. I uh, think I've seen him do one online debate one time somewhere. Uh, looks like he's got a substantial number of YouTube subscribers. So he's apparently making an impact. And of course, he was sent to me by more than one person as someone I should consider. Now, going forward, uh, I will try to focus more on other stuff, not just the cosmological stuff uh, that shows up a lot. We'll try to get more into design arguments. We'll try to get into uh, the moral argument a bit more. And I really need to find someone who's actually going to tackle the resurrection and deal with some uh, uh, atheist YouTubers who talk about the resurrection. So we'll, we'll try to do all of those things. And uh, I hope that that is helpful to you. All right, so let's go ahead and listen to what he has to say. And actually, at first, I think he's going to play portions of Craig, William Lane Craig's video on the Kalam Cosmological Argument. And then he'll make comments, and then I'll make comments, and we'll just all have comments. It'll be fun. Let's get started. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. The first thing worth noting is that this is the entire argument, and yet the word God appears nowhere. Okay, uh, this is something that came up in the debate with Matt Dillahunty that I had, and in fact, I was prepared for it. And so as a result, what I did was I had uh, heard him make this almost every time that Matt Dillahunty discusses a cosmological argument, specifically the Kalam cosmological argument, he will say um, something like, this is not an argument for God. God is not mentioned anywhere in the argument. It's not in the beginning. It's not in the conclusion. And many times he and others have simply brushed off this argument and, not, and decided not to deal with it further, thinking that that's a get out of jail free card with the uh, the argument doesn't mention the Kalam or doesn't mention God. Uh, however, that's why I, in my debate with Matt, uh, was prepared for that. And I said, I'm going to bring a case that begins with the Kalam. And Matt missed that uh, and stepped into it and said the same thing he always says. It doesn't even mention uh, God in the, anywhere in the in the argument. So uh, so I had to explain to him, well, that's not what I said. I said, I'm bringing a case that begins with the Kalam. And you could say that going forward if you're a Christian apologist and you're 
you're dealing with someone like this, you could you could just uh, you know circumvent that criticism by saying I'm bringing you a case that begins with the Kalam. Uh, so what's going on here? Why why do we begin with this thing that doesn't even mention God? Well, the reason that we begin with something that doesn't even mention God is because uh, many of the criticisms that will that will be brought once we follow the Kalam up will be things that would have been addressed by the Kalam. For instance, what if someone were to say, um, what if I just started with the um, analysis of what that cause must be philosophically, and I were to say, okay, so it has to be uh, a being that is, uh, you know, timeless. Okay, you might say, well, wait a minute, why does it need to be timeless? I mean, after all, uh, the universe may have always existed. And then, of course, we would go back to the Kalam cosmological argument, which deals with that. So you can see the Kalam actually heads off a lot of the criticisms that would have been brought by uh, during the analysis of the of what the cause must be. So it's important to start with the Kalam. And anyone who doesn't understand why, uh, I've, I've heard several, I don't know if this guy does, but I've heard several, uh, including Matt Dillahunty, say, why don't you just start with the analysis of the cause rather than begin with this uh, Kalam. Some people have even said it's dishonest because it, it, using this philosophical argument that seems tight and seems to make sense uh, tricks the hearer into thinking that what they're hearing is actually something more solid when they get to the analysis of the cause. That's not at all what's going on. What's going on here is a argument that handles a lot of the issues that, we would, uh, that would be brought up later, so it heads that off. Um, so uh, does it mention God anywhere in this specific argument? No. But when someone says the Kalam cosmological argument is the best argument for God's existence, they mean the whole ball of wax. They don't just mean the actual philosophical argument with the two premises and the conclusion. They mean the longer uh, version of the case that we're bringing. So really, this is this is not worth too much time talking about. But there are so many people that say that. And whenever I see someone in the comments or anywhere else say, well, it doesn't even mention God, I think, yeah, well, I mean, you know, th this just sounds to me, uh, and I always, I try to be nice. I don't want to be uncool. I want to be kind of straightforward and clinical about this, but the fact of the matter is that just sounds like uh, a party line that's out there that people hear other people saying, and it kind of goes back and forth. And it, it's, you know, just you deal with the issue here. You're right. This doesn't mention God, but that's not uh, an important, that's not all that important because it's a part of a case that gets you to God. So let's continue. For the sake of discussion, I could accept the entire thing as is, and all we would have to agree to is that there was a sufficient cause for the universe. And I think later he does admit to that, or at least seems to. Maybe it's just for the sake of argument, but it sounds like he agrees. So great. With a person like this, I would just say, all right, uh, if that's how you feel, then let's just go right on to the analysis of the cause. However, um, what he he's going to make a mistake when it comes to the term universe. Now, he would say that we're making a mistake. Um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself again. You know I tend to do that. Let's keep trucking. To make the leap that this causes a deity is entirely outside of the scope of the cosmological argument and does not follow from the premises. Let's say someone emerged from a crowd to lay claim to the throne based on their royal lineage. Prove that you are the son of the king. Every human who was born has parents. This is true. I was born. Also true. Therefore, I have parents. But that doesn't mean your father was the king. Nonsense. Hand me the crown. So... Okay, so uh, this is also pretty typical, and uh, I'm sorry, a lot of the things that come up across these different videos as objections kind of get bounced around in the internet YouTube atheist community, and the fact of the matter is they're really bad objections, and I just don't know any other way to say it, and I think they just get echoed because there's an echo chamber of YouTube atheists out there. I think that's why uh, this sort of commentary on videos like this is important. So for those of you that have heard me say some of these things before, and I should go ahead and say some of what I'm going to say in this video is 
stuff you've heard me say before in response videos. Uh, so if you do, if you get there, if you hear something like that, you know, um, I, I'm the kind of author that says if you don't like uh, a chapter of the of a, one of my books, just go ahead and skip that chapter. I don't care. Uh, I'm not concerned about you looking at it as an art form where you've got to enjoy the whole thing in one. No, 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 just skip to the next chapter. In the same way, if I'm talking about something you've already heard about, just skip to the next point. I really don't care if you've heard it before. Uh, but if you're new to this stuff, if you haven't heard me, then you need to listen through. Otherwise, you might get confused about what I'm saying. Um, but what he's doing here, this is this is standard, is saying, look, all they've done is give you this argument and then they make this giant leap to it must be uh, God that's the cause without uh, without giving you the same sort of rigorous argumentation to get you there. Um, that's not true at all. Uh, there is an analysis done on what that cause must be, and we'll look at that in just a few moments. But it's not like, you know, saying something as simple as everybody has parents and so I'm, I'm, I'm the king or whatever that's supposed to be. No, we're not saying the universe has a cause, therefore God. That's not what we're saying. And we're also not saying, uh, not that he's implied this yet, but we're also not saying we don't know what the cause is, therefore we can say that it's God. That's These are all typical kind of sophomoric atheist uh, objections to uh, an argument like this. Again, he didn't bring the second of those sorts of objections. I was just throwing that in there because I hear it a lot. But anyway, uh, yeah, so so far we've, we've heard some of the stereotypes. Let's continue. Even if the Kalam succeeds, it ultimately fails. But still, let's let Craig take a closer look. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. Did Craig just admit that a good analogy for God would be a magician? Yes, he did, and it's an analogy. Um, analogy. The whole point of an analogy is there's is you're looking for something that has something in common with what it is you're trying to give an analogy for. So you're looking for something that doesn't share all of the qualities, characteristics, and isn't exactly the same. It's something that everyone can relate to in their own experience. So if we're talking about bringing the universe into existence out of nothing, uh, yes, the concept or the idea of a magical man who can pull a rabbit out of a hat when there wasn't a rabbit there before is uh, an analogy to God brings something into existence out of nothing. But let's not forget the worst situation that the atheist is in. If he wants to laugh at the idea that Craig is using a magician as an example of God here, um, notice that Craig's point of always doing that is to say that it's uh, that that what the universe coming into existence uncaused out of nothing is worse than magic because you don't even have the magician to pull the rabbit out of the hat, and you don't have the hat either. The rabbit just pops into existence uncaused out of nothing. So uh, the mockery is a little bit misplaced here because if you're going to you know point out obviously as a way of making a little bit of a humorous joke out of the fact that, uh, well, you know, Christians don't want to say that it's mad, the supernatural is magic, uh, but here they've given an example that would make God a magician. Yeah, it's an analogy. And But guess what? The actual reality of what you're describing is worse than the than the joke you're making out of the analogy. So just wanting to, uh, to to put that out there. Yeah, a magician pulling a rabbit out of the hat sounds silly to us, but the idea of the rabbit appearing uncaused out of nothing sounds even sillier. So let's keep trucking. Interesting. If we're going to evaluate the truth of the first premise, we might first consider defining terms. What does it mean to begin to exist? For example, when does a chair begin to exist? Is it when the plans are drawn up? When the wood is cut? When the pieces are assembled? The first time someone sits on it? In fact, perhaps we would be better off reworking the entire argument. Premise 1. Everything that begins to exist is a rearrangement of things that already exist. Premise 2. The universe began to exist. Conclusion. 
The universe is a rearrangement of things that already exist. Now, what he's done here is pretty interesting. What he's done is he has, to, it is true that everything in our experience, well, I don't even know if this is true, but let's just go ahead and grant it for the sake of argument that everything in our experience is simply a rearrangement of things that already exist. Even if we were to grant that, that completely misses the point. Um, oftentimes, whenever YouTube atheists deal with this argument, they don't take into account the differences in Aristotelian uh, causes or types of causes. So uh, this is why you you get some people claiming there's an equivocation on the word cause uh, between the first premise and the conclusion. If you don't know what I'm talking about there, go back and watch the response video I did with Matt Dillahunty, uh, Cosmic Skeptic and Rationality Rules. I unpacked that and the problems with that there. But uh, basically, Aristotle gave us four uh, sorts of causes. You have the efficient cause, you have the material cause, you have the, the formal cause, and you have the final cause. And so what Craig is referring to in his version of the Kalam argument is an efficient cause in every case. So what the efficient cause is, is an agent that brings a thing into being or initiates a change. Um, so, so in every experience that we have in reality, 100% of our experience confirms the idea that when something uh, when some change occurs or when something comes into being or begins to exist, there is an agent that resulted in that happening or brought it into existence. And when we say agent, we're not just talking about a person, but we're talking about something. An agent uh, uh, is a person or a thing that causes something to come into existence or whatever. So efficient cause is what we're talking about here. And this means that his discussion about the chair and this uh you know, thing that we have about everything. It's a rearrangement of things that misses the point. And again, you need to go over the types of causation and under or the types of causes and understand that we're talking about the efficient cause. Hope that helps. That is equally as valid as the Kalam and brings us to the conclusion that our universe came not from nothing, but from something pre-existing, which was again, if you confuse what we're talking about when we say cause, we'll get to later. As for a cause, well, in order for a cause and effect to have relevance, it's clear that one would need to have time as well. Cause must come temporally before effect. If we try to extend this premise beyond time as we know it, then we'd be in a realm where there might not be causation as we know it. Okay, interesting thing to talk about here, and this is where we get to a little bit about time. Um, so it's not even true necessarily that, you, that in order to have um, causes, you have to have uh, something that the, the cause coming temporarily before the effect. So imagine as a thought experiment, whether you believe such a thing is even possible or not, uh, whether I believe such a thing is possible or not. Imagine that you have a book sitting on a podium and let's imagine in our thought experiment that the podium and the book have been sitting there forever. I mean, that, that eternally, like just even though I don't believe such a concept makes any sense, infinitely into the past and in, it will exist infinitely into the future. Well, then in such a case, the podium is causing the book to be suspended in the air. But if it's been there infinitely, then one didn't come before the other. So it's not even true that you have to have the cause coming temporally before the effect. Um, so that's not even right. So let's go ahead and here he is next. Outside the scope of our universe, we can't know if this premise holds. What? Okay, so he says we can't know whether this premise holds. Well, understand something. When we're talking about arguments like this, what we're trying to do is we're taking a look at what is the most plausible explanation, the plausible, not in the colloquial sense, but in the um, sense, you know, a more rigorous academic sense. What we mean by plausibility uh, in philosophy and science and in history is what is, it's more likely to be true than false. So 
um, when you're trying to build an argument, you want premises that are plausible, that are more likely to be true than false. So what, it doesn't matter whether we have absolute certainty about something. We need to know that it's plausible. And here, do we have plausibility? Yeah, it's really, really plausible that, the, that uh, there was a cause that brought the universe into existence. Um, because if you don't have that cause, understand what you are saying. You are saying that in a state of absolute nothingness. Now, again, we'll have to talk about what we mean by universe here in just a little while because uh, it'll matter uh, how he uses universe. But whenever we're talking about um, uh, something coming to exist from a state of timeless nothingness, which he doesn't grant, and again, that's why we'll get there. But when we're talking about something coming into a, coming into existence from a state of timeless nothingness, um, the idea, and this is where we get back to the magician and the rabbit and all that stuff again, the idea that something, that everything could come to exist from literally nothing in a spaceless, timeless state uh, means that you're talking about a state where there is literally nothing, by which we don't mean a roiling sea of fluctuating energy, which is what we're going to get to by the end of this video, uh, kind of the Stephen Hawking sort of approach. But what you're talking about is not anything. You know, uh, nothing is not anything. And in a state of not anything, you have no potentialities, no powers, no possibilities, no properties, nothing. So the idea that something, that everything, in fact, could come to exist from a state of no properties, no possibilities, no powers, um, and, and no potentialities, um, if you're ready to say that, then your belief is uh, more wild, more out there by far than the belief in God. I mean, you're, you're positing something that you have absolutely no reason to believe at all and is not only extremely counterintuitive, but you can't even explain how something could theoretically even possibly uh, uh, happen that way because you can't have anything. You can't posit anything there as the explanation. Remember, if you say that, that nothing could cause something, then you're saying that it does have properties or it does have possibilities or it does have some powers, but not anything doesn't have any of that. And so as a result, you're just stuck and you can't say that something could come to exist out of nothing. So yeah, we can. Uh, also, one final thing about this, um, you, could, you, could have, you could still have the cause coming, uh, be existing logically prior uh, to the existence of the universe, even if there is no time or temporality prior to the beginning of the universe. And the causation would be simultaneous with the first moment of the beginning of the universe. There's just no problem there. And I really don't understand why people think there's an issue with that. So uh, you get that with agent causation, by the way, but I, I just don't see a, a problem there. So let's keep trucking and see where we go next. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin, or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. Again, it's important to understand terms. In this case, the difference between universe and cosmos, as they are used in science, since that's where the discussion will be going. The cosmos, as the late, great Carl Sagan put it, The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Whereas the how does he know? The universe is best defined as the single instantiation of space-time where we live. The universe is part of the cosmos, like a storage unit is part of a storage facility. And we have no way of knowing if we are merely one among many universes, or one in a succession of universes, or maybe the only universe. 
What's important is that modern cosmologists don't say that the universe has been here forever and is just there and that's all, as Craig asserts. That's how they would describe the cosmos. In science, cosmos and universe are not interchangeable terms. Craig's video goes on to appeal to science's acceptance of the Big Bang. Okay, so uh, so he wants to tell us there's a difference between universe and cosmos. Um, fine. Uh, we've covered this before, haven't we? Uh, you'll recall if you've watched the other response videos that I've done that I've mentioned many times that fine. But what Craig means in the Kalam cosmological argument is all contiguous physical reality, which means whether you have a universe, a multiverse, a vacuum, a cyclical model, a big crunch, and all whatever of all of these possibilities that you want to posit, whatever you have, the, the, word, the way that Craig is using the word universe in this case is to refer to all contiguous physical reality. So what he's doing is he's saying, look, Craig's argument only works with the universe and the universe might be just like one storage unit. Uh, so what's Craig going to say about the rest of it? Well, Craig's talking about the rest of it because he's talking about all contiguous physical reality. Now, insisting upon, uh, you know, upon insisting upon your terminology and that he doesn't use your terminology does not avoid the point that he's making. And if you've watched enough Craig that you are familiar enough with him that you think you can do a uh, video responding to his uh, Kalam cosmological argument, when, as you said, he is the modern popularizer of this argument and has used it in most of his debates over the past several decades, then, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is you should know what he means when he says universe. And what he means is all contiguous physical reality. So uh, when we uh, understand that, then we understand that everything he's saying about the universe, he's not aiming at just the local representation of the universe or the one storage uh, locker that we're in. He's talking about the whole ball of wax. And so uh, you, you got to deal with what he says as it relates to the whole ball of wax. ...theory to establish that the universe had a beginning. As long as Craig sticks to the scientific definition of universe and doesn't pretend that it's the same as the cosmos, then we can skip that part and all just agree. Oh, wait. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. I'm going to want to talk about the first law of thermodynamics, so it's good that Craig affirms the second law. Carry on. It's quite plausible, then, that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. Yeah, so uh, point of clarification here, when Craig uses scientific argumentation, uh, which he says he thinks the philosophical is the far better argumentation uh, when, when it comes to this argument, but he throws in the science because it does back up the point. And um, if you want to know why, you know, wh whether what Craig thinks about the scientific, scientific side of things as it relates to the multiverse or other models, you can consult his work. I don't deal with the scientific stuff, and it's not important to get the cosmological argument that we're talking about here through. So I, I don't really deal with that. Uh, but yeah, if, if we can see based on some scientific principles and some things that scientists agree on that it looks like the universe, our current iteration of the universe can't be past infinite, um, then that certainly is consistent with the Kalam cosmological argument. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the philosophical side of things relates to the whole multiverse, the whole vacuum, if there is such a thing. And by the way, let's not forget 
that we don't have the evidence that there is anything else outside of our local representation of the universe. You know, a lot of times in my videos, I just take it, I just grant it like, okay, maybe there is a multiverse. And if there is a multiverse, then all these things work on the multiverse, the philosophical side of things as well. It's important for us to rec recognize that one of the reasons why it is that uh, that uh, the, the multiverse idea is so popular is because uh, it, you have to increase the number of universes that you might have in order to increase the odds that you would get one like ours that is uh, life permitting and that things work the way they do. And, and because this is highly unlikely and anyone who says that the universe we have is not highly unlikely and that it does seem at least incredibly fine tuned for life to be possible, um, then uh, cue, cue the criticism that, oh, most of our universe is not life permitting. Okay, but part of it is, right? Okay, so uh, the, the, the idea is that it is incredibly fine tuned for life to be possible at all, at least it seems that way. And so how do you get that in a naturalist atheistic cosmos. Well, one thing you can do is you can increase the number of universes. Maybe there's all kinds of other universes. And if we get trillions and trillions of those, maybe even infinite number of those, then uh, surely uh, one or more of them will be universes like ours. And the math works out. So maybe the math working out is evidence for it. Not really. Um, the math shows that if that were the case, maybe that would work out that way, but it doesn't give you any reason to believe that it's actually the case. So when uh, we talk about scientific reasons to believe that our universe has a beginning, for all we know, this is all of space, time, and matter. Nevertheless, if there is a multiverse um, or something like it, then guess what? The philosophical issues that we'll talk about in a few moments they relate to that as well. So Craig's not trying to pretend that when we're talking about universe, we mean cosmos. When he talks about universe most of the time, he's talking about the whole ball of wax. Let's keep trucking. The truth. The universe has a cause. Right. The argument concludes that the universe has a sufficient cause. Still no discussion of God and the video is almost over. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. So far so good. It must be spaceless. Whoa, we went over the rails right on the first one. Craig himself describes our universe as the space-time universe. The Big Bang was the start of our universe's local space coordinates, X, Y, and Z, and time, T. But just as a piece of graph paper has its own localized XY spatial coordinate system, that piece of paper still exists in the universe's three-dimensional space. The cosmos may well have its own spatial dimensions. It may have many more dimensions than our four, or perhaps it could have even zero dimensions. The point is, there could be any number of sufficient causes for our universe that exist in some semblance of space outside of our version of it. The cause needn't be spaceless. Timeless? What applied to the three dimensions of space equally applies to the fourth dimension of time. A stopwatch has its own temporal system, but the one pressing the start button still exists in their own temporal system. The cosmos may have its own system of time, or it may exist in such a state that the idea of time is incoherent. We don't yet know what the sufficient cause of the universe was, but it could easily have been temporal. Immaterial. This is getting repetitive, but there's no reason to assert that the cause couldn't have been a material manifestation. Scientists don't think that the Big Bang was from nothing, but rather the expansion of a singularity containing all of our universe's matter and energy. Whatever was happening inside that singularity would certainly have been material as we know it. Earlier, Craig appealed to the second law of thermodynamics, but let's talk about the first law. 
Okay, let's stop for a moment and consider what he said. Basically, here he's talking about the fact that um, how can you how can you say that it's uh, spaceless, timeless, non-material, these sorts of things, um, when uh, just because you know, just like when you uh, do some work on a piece of paper, yeah, there are parameters on the paper, but then you're outside of the paper, and with time, you've got the the watch face, but you're outside of time, you got your own time, that sort of thing. Uh, the, the thing is, so if you have something else, if our local representation of the universe, as it's often termed, is a part of something larger that is another iteration of space, time, and physical matter, um, perhaps in a multiverse or a vacuum or whatever, then, okay, uh, then you can't say that it's spaceless, timeless, and non-material. Fine. This is where I say it's important to understand that when we're talking about universe in the column that Craig gives, he's talking about all contiguous physical reality. And so for that reason, if we're talking about a, cos uh, a, a cosmos that is a multiverse or a vacuum, something much bigger with trillions of other universes, uh, you know, tens of trillions, trillions of trillions of other universes, whatever you want to say, just pile it on there all you want. The fact is you're just kicking the ball way back up the street again. And I've said that before because you still have to have an ultimate beginning for that. Why do you have to have an ultimate beginning for that? Well, in case this is someone's first time to watch one of my response videos, and if it is, uh, if it isn't for you and you have seen them before, then this is the moment where if you've already heard me talk about these things, then just go ahead and skip ahead five minutes or so and, and, and then I'll see you on the other side because you've heard this before. On the other hand, you might want to get it by repetition, but basically here's the deal. The universe cannot be, uh, the universe has to have a spaceless, timeless, non-material cause because there has to be a beginning to space, time, and physical matter. Why does there have to be a beginning for space, time, and physical matter? Here's where you got to get away from the sciencey stuff and get to the philosophy type stuff. And when we look at philosophical reasons, you can't have a, a past infinite cosmos because if you had a past infinite cosmos, um, then you you would you could you could never have arrived at this moment that we're experiencing right now, and the reason you could never have arrived at this particular moment that we're experiencing right now is if the universe is actually past infinite, which means there is no beginning. Space, time, and matter has just always existed in some way or another, in some possible multiverse or some iteration or whatever. The problem that you've got there is if space, time, and physical matter exist infinitely in the past, you'd never get to this moment because you could never cross an actual infinite amount of time. The universe could have not endured an actual infinite number of temporal moments or causal events to get to the moment that we're experiencing right now. And the reason that you couldn't get from uh, you couldn't get to this point is because however much of infinity you cross, you still have infinity to go. Infinity is not just uh, like we talk about it colloquially, like we say there's an infinite number of grains of sand on the beaches of the world. There's actually a number. It's a really high number, but there's actually a number. When we say infinite, we mean there isn't a number because it just is forever. It's just infinite. There is no number. Infinity is one of those ideas that you think you can wrap your mind around for a moment and then it's gone, you know? And so the idea that the universe is past infinite, you can never get to this moment because let's, for some of you, this is old hat, but let's go back to the Hilbert's Hotel idea again. Uh, or no, let's do the, I like the library better. Let's, let's imagine that we have a library with 
What are they? An infinite number of red and black books. And every other book is red and every other book is black. And you have infinite number of those red and black books. If you took away all the red books, which means you've taken away half of the infinite books in the infinite library, now how many books do you have? You still have infinite. What? What are you talking about? I should have half of infinite. Yeah, but that's the thing about infinite. It's infinite. So if you added 20 to infinity or 5 billion to infinity or subtracted 80 million from infinity, you still have infinity. And these mathematical absurdities result because there are no actual infinites. Now you can have potential infinites. Potential infinites just means that it's a concept in your mind. You can conceive of dividing a particular line an infinite number of times. Um, but you couldn't actually divide it an infinite number of times because every time you divided it, you could say, I divided it once, twice, uh, 30 billion times, 40 billion times, and however many times you divide it, you could just divide it again, but you would still have a number, whatever number you had, plus one. You can't reach infinity by successive addition, and if the past is infinite, you can't reach today by successively crossing temporal moments or causal events. So you can never arrive at this moment if the universe is past temporal or is past infinite. So uh, the universe is not past infinite, but the universe, the cosmos, the whatever you want to call it, has a beginning. Uh, another problem with it is if it is past infinite, you didn't have anywhere to start from. How, where did we start to start crossing these moments to arrive at this present moment? It's like, as I've said before, trying to jump out of a hole without a bottom to it. Uh, so it's, it's the, the idea that the universe is past infinite is absurd. And the idea that people still try to posit this and say, well, it's just because the universe is so complex, so, so far beyond. And, you know, after all, in quantum mechanics, things happen differently than we expect anyway. So, yeah, there's some mind-blowing stuff out there. And, and so even though it seems impossible from our perspective, maybe the universe is past infinite and we did still arrive at today. No, I'm sorry. That's just simply absurd. Uh, you're just trying to bury it in the complexity of of certain areas of science, but it's not hard to conceptualize that if there was no beginning, and if you have an infinite number of points, you could never cross them all. Otherwise, they're not infinite. So that's not possible. And if someone maintains that it is possible, the conversation should end because we're, you know, it's we're not getting anywhere. That's just that's just silly talk. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, but they think that silly talk is, sounds better to them than God. And so, you know, they're going to stick with the silly talk, even though it is impossible. Uh, so uh, there's that. That's the problem with the past infinite. So even if you want to say that we're a part of some bigger storage unit that has all these other storage units within it, doesn't solve the problem. You've still got to figure out the storage unit to begin with and where it came from because somebody built that storage complex. Sorry. So anyway, um, yeah, so... That deals with the why it is that that's just kicking the can up the street. And I think he's going to say something now about the first law of thermodynamics. Let's see what he says. Energy can be transformed, but it cannot be created nor destroyed. If this law holds, we need not appeal to a god to deal with infinite regress. Our eternal constant is energy. If energy has always existed, then it follows naturally that any existing universes could be a mere transformation of part of that energy. This is my personal cosmology, that if something has to exist eternally, that thing is energy. The advantage of choosing energy over positing an eternal god is that we all agree that energy is a real thing. Uncaused. The cause of our universe could easily have been a caused thing. Perhaps our universe was caused by a quantum fluctuation. Okay, so what he's saying here is that, okay, he, he seems to recognize that we can't have an infinite regress, but he doesn't really address that. 
He just says, if something has to exist eternally, by which I think he must mean timelessly, it doesn't really matter what he means. But do you mean timelessly or uh, or infinitely into the past? Because those are different things. Um, and he says, well, just stick energy there. We'll just say it's energy. Okay, well, that would allow for something like uh, Stephen Hawking's grand design, where he talks about the universe could come to exist from nothing. But what he means by nothing is uh, this fluctuating, you have a, a positive and negative balance of energy that then fluctuates. Here's the problem. What have you got then if you've got this energy? That means you've got space, you've got uh, the energy itself, and uh, you, you have all of this existing and you have time because uh, you can't have what he's talking about with this fluctuation uh, that caught, well, let's hear it. Uncaused. The cause of our universe could easily have been a caused thing. Perhaps our universe was caused by a quantum fluctuation. Okay, so he's already got, uh, a, a, he's got a space, he's got energy, he's got, um, you know, stuff happening within it, which means you have time. So you still haven't solved the problem of the impossibility of an infinite regression of things. And after all, how do you explain the coming into existence of uh, this space, this time, this energy? Um, you know, it's kind of like when uh, the atheist, it's kind of like the atheist says, I can, I can uh, make a man just like God can make a man. Well, how do you do it? Well, you just take a little dirt and a little water and God says, uh, you know what? I made that dirt and water. Get your own dirt and water. You know, where did, where did, the, uh, where did, where did this energy and, and space and time come from? What's the cause of that? Now, he wants to say, well, you Christians will say God exists um, un, as the uncaused cause of the physical universe. And maybe energy could be that um, uncaused cause of the physical universe. And maybe all the things you want to say about God, you could say about energy. The problem is, because of this infinite regression issue, uh, you can't get there. And if you wanted to say something like, well, let's just say that energy existed spacelessly, timelessly, and non-materially. Uh, well, that doesn't make any sense because it, it, that's not what we mean when we're talking about energy. But even then, you would still need something. You'd need an agent to actually choose to bring the universe into existence. So you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful something that brought the universe into existence. Could it be energy? It couldn't be energy. And the reason that it couldn't be energy is because it would have to be something that has a mind. Uh, First of all, energy is something that exists materially, but secondly, it would have to have a mind. And the reason that we would say it has to have a mind is because um, you have to have agent causation. Again, some have heard me say this before, but you have different types of causation. You have state-state um, causation. That's like a log resting on a frozen pond. The state of the pond is causing the state of the log. You have event-event um, causation. That's like uh, throwing a book through a window. Uh, the book breaks the window. An event causes another event. But what you have with the coming into existence of the universe or the cosmos or whatever from a state of time timeless nothingness is, you would have um, state event causation. You went from a state of timeless nothingness to an event, the beginning of the universe. And what explains that is agent causation. You can imagine that simply as a man sitting in a chair, he's in a state of sitting, and then he, because he's an agent, causes an event by standing up. So you have state event causation. That just is the explanation for that. But as those of you who have listened know, I always also add to that, that um, in a state of timeless nothingness, you would have no prior determinism to lead to 
uh, the beginning of the universe. And so that would mean that the cause would have to have libertarian freedom. And what has libertarian freedom? Agents have libertarian freedom. Uh, personal agents have libertarian freedom. And so you have a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful personal agent that serves as the best explanation for the beginning of the universe. So energy will not get you there. Unless what you want to say is that when you say energy, what you mean is a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful energy that also has a mind um, and that's what brought the universe into existence. But of course, then you've just described God and called God energy. Well, that's fine. And that may sound strange when you go to church, uh, but welcome to theism, you energy theist. Uh, but there's actually another form of theism that I think he postulates here. Let's keep trucking. By the end of a prior universe, by the flapping of wings of a cosmic butterfly. Okay, I don't know what a cosmic butterfly is, but if a cosmic butterfly exists within the physical universe, uh, then it can't serve as an explanation for the physical universe, or, uh, or you know, or, or the cosmos or the multiverse. Um, and if this cosmic universe exists, uh, sands the physical universe and serves as the cause, then we now have a cosmic butterfly, but it has to meet these parameters: spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, cosmic butterfly with a mind that brought the universe into existence. Now, you've just described God and called God a cosmic butterfly. I call this the pixie parade. And the reason I call this the pixie parade, and I've mentioned it in several videos, is because as I look through YouTube atheist videos, what I continually find is people will try to posit some other possible explanation for the beginning of the universe other than God. But whenever they posit this thing, either it meets everything that we would call God, uh, in Matt Dillahunty's case, a pixie, in Jacqueline Glenn's case, a uh, ham and cheese sandwich, and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, it, it's, it's, you're just describing God and then labeling it something else. Now, I think he's referring to something within the cosmos, so maybe that doesn't work. But I'm still going to add it to the list and consider Paulogia now. If he thinks that's the beginning, then we're talking about the cosmic butterfly theism. So welcome to theism, you cosmic butterfly theists. So uh, Drew will have to add that to the book of pixie parade gods. Let's keep trucking. The Kalam argues only for a sufficient cause of our particular universe. If something has to be uncaused, let's go with energy. And unimaginably powerful. One last time, the Kalam argues only for a sufficient cause. Now, you'll notice that he began and ended this video. Well, we're not quite to the end yet, but he began and now he's closing this video by pointing out what is so typical of YouTube atheists that the, uh, that the Kalam cosmological argument doesn't mention God, doesn't give you God, just gives you uh, that the universe had a cause. But remember that uh, he's, he's made uh, mistakes in understanding what Craig means throughout this video with uh, what type of cause we're talking about. Uh, what and how we're using the Kalam, why we're bringing up the Kalam to settle questions that would typically come during the analysis of that cause. And, uh, and he understands, he misunderstands what Craig means when he says universe. He's not just talking about our local representation of the universe, but all contiguous physical reality. Uh, with, those, uh, with those repairs to this, I think he would see that theism is the best explanation, or I think he should see that. So we've seen several big problems so far, but he begins and closes this video by pointing out the Kalam doesn't mention God and just talks about a cause for the universe. Um, this is said so often that it needs to be, I mean, if I, if I somehow became convinced that I should be an atheist and I started making atheist YouTube videos, I would never say that. And the reason I would never say that is because 
it's really just kind of silly because I don't mean to be offensive to Paul Logia. seems like a really nice guy. I think I like him from what I can tell. I don't know much about him. Um, I love what he's doing here with the graphics and the, the little cartoon image of himself. And I love the name, love everything about it. It's pretty cool. I think he's probably a pretty cool guy. So I don't mean to be uncool or unkind. I'm sure he's also a really smart guy. Uh, but I would drop this thing if I was a YouTube atheist because you know what you're, at least if you think you're knowledgeable enough on what we're saying to make a video like this, you know what we're doing with the Kalam. You know we're talking about a case for God that begins with the Kalam. And so when we say the Kalam is a good argument for God's existence, we're talking about the case, the lengthier argument that we're going to bring. And so I, what are you really, what are you trying to say there when you say something like that? You know what we're saying. And unless you're trying to do what um, often some people do, and that is brush off the whole discussion, because it's a pretty tough discussion, by just saying, well, you know, it's just doesn't even mention God, so let's not talk about it. But that's not what you're doing here. So why even mention? It doesn't make... Look, we're talking about a case that begins with the Kalam. So, you know, there you go. An avalanche can be caused by the slip of a single pebble. There's no reason the cause of our universe needs to be anything more than adequate. Well, you know, fine. You know, uh, I've heard people say, well, you can't say that the cause is all-powerful or something like that. I always say sufficiently powerful, because it would have to be sufficiently powerful to serve as the cause of the universe. If it's not sufficiently powerful to cause the universe, then it's not the cause of the universe. So it would have to be sufficiently powerful. And frankly, a spaceless, timeless, uh, non-material, uh, uncaused, sufficiently powerful mind sounds enough like God to me that if you granted all that and didn't believe that, if you weren't a theist then, well, then something, we missed something somewhere. You know, what, what are you saying? So if you like, then just go with sufficiently powerful. That's what I always say. And you can't really argue with that. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. All the cosmological argument does is point toward a cause, but tells us nothing about that cause. When the argument is said and done, we are left asking, what caused the universe? Craig says God, and others more honestly say, we don't know. Okay, uh, again, now we're closing here with the idea that we don't know is some sort of a virtuous you know, uh, position to take or somehow the more humble thing to take. No, if you won't grant, yes, okay, as I've said before, in some cases, if you really don't have any good reason to believe that X is the case, then to say, I really don't know, yeah, that's humble, that's honest, that's great. But he's implying here that Craig is being somewhat dishonest because he says these other people that I'm sure he got from a stock photo somewhere and doesn't really know if they're honest people or not. Uh, but but he's saying Craig is, they're, they're coming by it more honestly. Craig's must not be as honest as them. No, Craig believes what he's saying and he believes he has really good reason to believe that X is the case because it's not like has just been characterized at the end of this video, which is really sloppy, which is a characterization that, um, Craig just went through the Kalam, got to the universe must have a cause, and then just plugged in God without any further argumentation. You know that's not what Craig is doing, or you haven't really considered anything else from Craig aside from this one video. Um, the, the point of these little short videos is to nutshell the argument for you so that most of the time in his public lectures, Craig can expound on those little videos um, as he did when I was uh, with him in uh, Corpus Christi, Texas, 
a couple of years ago. He did that very thing, played one of those videos, that very one, and then talked about it for a little while, unpacking it. Uh, that's the point of shorter YouTube videos, and uh, this video itself is pretty short. So, you know, the, the thing of your video, not mine, <laughs> my videos are almost never short. But Craig's not being dishonest. Come on. Craig didn't just go through the column with the two premises and then the conclusion and then say, therefore, God. Craig did further argumentation. And to say that that's less honest because he disagrees with you um, or thinks that he does know where you think you don't know, uh, that's not being dishonest. Now, you can say that he's wrong or you don't think he should say that he knows, but that's not dishonesty. That's really just silly. And again, it goes back to that whole thing of, well, the Kalam never mentions God, which for reasons we've already discussed is silly. Let's see if he says anything else. If you think that we don't know automatically equals God, and no serious working apologist, certainly not Craig, would say that just because we don't know something, that's where we plug God. I often hear people say, well, as science explains more and more about the universe, you uh, theists have to uh, crawl further and further back in the corners um, to where God's not the explanation for, you know, uh, you know the, the beginning of life and the, the change of life and uh, all these kind of things. Now you've moved so far back as to just say, no, 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 he's just, he's just the thing sands the physical universe that brought it into existence that science can't get to. No, no, no. Actually, what we're finding is the more science uh, is done, more good science is done, what we find is that um, it's actually very hospitable to theism. And what the skeptics have to do is they have to uh, become more and more and more skeptical uh, to try and escape. They have to raise the bar of skepticism so high to try and escape the uh, implications that good philosophy and good science has for theism. So um, Craig's not saying we don't know. He's not giving you an argument from ignorance. He's not doing a God of the gaps. Nothing like that's going on. Then how is your thinking any different than those who decided that lightning came? Oh, there it is, the lightning analogy, the typical God of the gaps illustration. Again, that's not what we're doing. We're not saying we don't know, therefore, God. We're saying here's a whole bunch of really good reasons it needs, it must be God. Must, okay, must be a spaceless, timeless, non-material, sufficiently powerful, uncaused personal agent. Good reasons, positive reasons to believe those things. Not we don't know, therefore, God. Come on. Came from Zeus. The only honest answer in all of this is something caused the universe, but we don't know what it was. But Again, the only honest answer? Seriously, this sort of talk is... The, uh, I'm getting a little bit uh, snarky today. Forgive me. I, I try not to be. I, again, I really like this guy. I re, you, Paul Ogia, if you see this, you probably will. I like you. You seem like a likable guy. But I just so often hear atheists say that apologists are being dishonest because they disagree with us, that it's, it's, uh, let's just move on. The Kalam cosmological argument says nothing about God. And there it is again. The case that begins with the Kalam does. If you think you scored some points, like some debate points with none of the premises or the conclusion mention God specifically. So this doesn't help the theist out at all. If, if, if you think you've scored points by saying it doesn't mention God, then have those points. Those are worthless points. Okay, you can have those. That's monopoly money. Doesn't matter in real life. But in real life, uh, the Kalam is very important to the discussion when we do the analysis of what that cause must be. If you enjoyed this video, 
I did. It was very enjoyable. Uh, in fact, I'll encourage you, go ahead and check out the rest of Apologia's stuff. If you find anything that you think I should respond to, then shoot that my way. I've enjoyed this. Oh, I said I was going to do a little discussion here at the end about the B theory of time. Uh, some people have said, doesn't the B theory cause problems for the Kalam cosmological argument? Um, maybe. Now, there are some people out there that will argue that even on a B theory, the Kalam uh, would still go through and the analysis, the case that begins with the Kalam would still go through. Uh, but here's the thing. You've got theories of time. Two of those are the A theory of time and the B theory of time. Well, the A theory of time says, um, which is, by the way, the one that I don't think anybody argues probably seems most intuitive to you, probably seems most obviously true, but that doesn't mean that it necessarily is, but um, is the idea that what is what actually exists is the present. The past did exist, but it does not exist now. And the future will exist, but it doesn't exist yet. It's not like 2050 is actually out there somewhere and everything that, um, that will happen um, currently exists. Now, that's not actually the right way to phrase that, but since I'm trying to shove this in at the end of a video and I don't want to take a lot of time, you need to take a tenseless view of time. So you'd say, in 2050, uh, X happens, and you try to be tenseless with it. And in 1980, Y happens. But the idea is that the past really does exist, and the future really does exist, and the current uh, the, the uh, state that we're in really does exist. The present does exist. Um, so if you ever watched a good time travel movie, all time travel films rely on a B theory of time because the idea is that, uh, say, with Back to the Future, 1984 really does exist or 1950 does exist. And if you just had the right apparatus to get you there, you could go there and you could, you could experience that existence. Um, so the future, on the B theory of time, the future exists, the past exists, everything on the timeline exists. And on that view, you could have, the B theorist would say, you could have an infinite timeline because you don't, because the universe didn't come to each of those points by crossing uh, an actual infinite. It all just exists eternally and necessarily, I think they would say, in some sense. The A theory of time says, no, you can't go to 1950 because even though it did exist, that's over and done with, and now the present exists. But the present will cease to exist, and we'll get to the future, which doesn't exist yet, but will exist. So that's the A theory of time. I hold to an A theory of time. William Lane Craig holds to an A theory of time. Does the B theory cause problems for the Kalam? Some people think so. Let me give you a couple of reasons why I think that the B theory of time is problematic. First of all, again, I think intuitions are important. Um, that's why even someone like Daniel Dennett will give you all kinds of analogies and illustrations to, that he thinks serve as intuition pumps to get your to, to help your intuitions, help you realize what your intuitions should be about a particular thing. But um, I think the intuition is important, and our intuition certainly strongly tells us that the past no longer exists, the future doesn't exist, and what I'm experiencing right now does exist. Another good uh, reason why you should have problems with the B theory of time is that uh, what do we mean? So if we're going to say that the past and future do exist, then you have to figure out what it means that there are a series of U's that exist. In my case, I was born in 1980, so there is a series of me's that exist back to 1980 when I was born. And there are a series of me's that stretch out into the future. 
And those future and past me's are just as real as the current me. They all exist just as much. So you have a couple of options on the table. Maybe it is the case that there is a potentially infinite number of me's that actually exist. Now that is a very bizarre position to take. And if you want to take that position, I've got some beachfront property in uh, Oklahoma to sell you. I mean, that, that sounds just, I mean, that's, that's shocking, right? The idea that there actually is an infinite number of me's that exist. Another approach you could take is to say that you have temporal parts. So you are actually, you as you exist, as you're watching this video, are not the whole you. Um, to get the whole you, and we don't mean you're, you need to go have therapy and then you'll be whole, or you need Jesus and then you'll be whole. That's true, but in a different sense. What we mean is you are a part of the whole you. You exist as a time worm stretching back, in my case, to 1980 and forward as long as I'll live. And I am just one part of the bigger me that exists. <laughs> time worms are a big problem for a lot of reasons. Uh, one of the problems with it is it means that at any given point, you are both hungry and not hungry, right? <laughs> you, you see, there are all kinds of seeming contradictions that exist when you, um, when you say something like that. So B theory of time seems really problematic. Um, I'll give you a reason if you're a Christian, maybe you're a Christian, you say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe in God because of the Kalam. So I don't care if the A or the B theory is true. And maybe the B theory makes sense to me. And hey, I like the idea of time travel. So maybe the B theory is true. Uh, one of the problems with the time worm situation with the B theory for a Christian is that if you're a Christian uh, and you believe that's true, then that means that you are both saved and not saved at the same time, which certainly doesn't seem to be what Christianity teaches. Well, what if you're a, an atheist? And you actually don't have a problem with the idea that there is a potentially infinite number of yous that exist on your timeline. Um, well, there's another thing that you might want to consider. Uh, my friend Tim Stratton argues over at Free Thinking Ministries that uh, this causes a major problem for biological evolution. If biological evolution relies on change over time and the B theory is true, then we would experience uh, as we move through the timeline of the history of the world what appears like evolution. But if the future and past are equally real, then that fully formed primate, indeed that fully formed human, existed all along, sort of. Again, we have to use tenseless theory. Um, but that, that just as much existed as the single-celled organism existed because they all exist um, on the B theory. And one way to think about it is it's like on the time block, I'm on this part of the time block over here in, in, in inhabiting these moments and you're inhabiting your moments as you watch this video. But the you or the single-celled organism uh, way, way, way back from our perspective it, it still exists just as much as you exist right now. It's just on a different part of the block. And uh, the primate down the line from that single-celled organism, it exists on a different part of the block. So it causes major problems for the idea that actual change over time resulted in these new beings because those new beings, those new, uh, those, those uh, you know, me, you, these results of evolution, if evolution were true, those already existed in a sense uh, on the B theory of time, just as much as the uh, single-celled organism did. So uh, don't make fun of these creationists like you do that. Well, they just believe that um, that God just created a, a fully formed man without going through all these steps. Well, on the B theory of time, that fully formed primate was just as real as the single-celled organism, uh, just on a different part of the time block. So. 
there's a reason why if you're a naturalist who accepts evolution, maybe the B theory isn't the best. There's a lot and lo there's a whole lot of other there are a whole lot of other reasons to reject the B theory, but I'm just giving you a few right here um, to, to, to work on and to think about. And maybe in a future video, we'll go over even more. So there, I tried to help out Paul Ogia by adding another criticism, but of course then I answered that other criticism, I think. So um, I've enjoyed this. I think we've learned some uh, good uh, new information uh, in terms of these response videos, and we um, recapped some old information that we've already discussed in the past. So I hope that this has been helpful to you. And I'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.